from the mirror zone i am bryce skidmore and i am david leskin and it just feels like it's been ages since we've we've met yeah it's been literally time it's been a cigarette it's (laughs) it's been one whole cigarette's worth of time (laughs) but uh we're back to talk about uh our last and final installment of our japanese science fiction episodes uh this one on uh, tetsuyano's the legend of the paper spaceship uh, yeah, why don't we start by talking a little bit about Tetsuyano. Let's do Tetsuyano is actually a, uh, it's a writer's name, it's a pen name, mm-hmm. for uh, Osamu, Osamu Sakata. And Tetsuyano was born October 5th, 1923, and died October 13th, 2004. Uh, he was a Japanese science fiction translator and writer. He began to introduce Japanese readers uh, to the works of U.S. science fiction writers in the late 1940s. He was the first Japanese writer of the genre to visit the United States in 1953. He took part in founding Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of Japan, SFWJ, in 1963, and served as its president from 1978 to 1979. Yano was born in Matsuyama, Ehime Prefecture, and grew up in Kobe. After studying at Chuo University for three years, he was drafted into the Imperial Japanese Army, serving two years and two months. After the war, he made a living collecting trash on a U.S. military base, where he became fascinated with the colorfully illustrated science fiction works thrown away by the soldiers. Dude. Yeah. He learned to read English and eventually began translating science fiction, including the works of uh, Robert Heinlein, Frederick Pohl, Desmond Bagley, and Frank Herbert. Uh, he actually did 360 translations. Damn. Yeah, it's a lot. He later made a name for himself by translating the American novels which had inspired him to become a writer, including Dune and Starship Troopers. Dude. Yeah, pretty legendary. Actually, you know, and that's a thing where it's like, if I ever go to Japan, I think I'm going to try and keep a lookout for, like, a, one of his Japanese translations. Like, I can't read Japanese, but, like... It would I, be really nice to own one. I just like that cool shit, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, I and I love the idea that um, going into his own works, that, that those were his inspirations. You know what I mean? That that's what brought him into science fiction. No, and actually, like, we were having a conversation about this, and we'll we'll come back into it at the end, but, like, knowing that he, he was the first Japanese translator for Dune. It's pretty epic. It makes sense for this story, too. Like, it definitely makes sense for this story. You can see, ex- like, exactly where a lot of these ideas probably had their seeds. Yeah. And it's like, I also love the Heinlein, too. You can definitely also, and you'll see as we talk about this a little bit more, but there's some definite Heinlein influence in this. Fuck yes. He wrote stories of his own, including The Legend of the Paper Spaceship, which first appeared in English translation in 1984, and has appeared in several collections, including the one that we read. And some of his stories have actually been adapted into anime. Maybe we'll go through some one of those in the future if we can find them. I, I found a few, but we might want to pick the theme and maybe put them together with another one that actually i think that'd be a, a couple of fun minisodes where it's like we should do black sun and we should do one of his anime that would be great yes i think that those would go well together so look for that for a future episode fuck yes sadly yano died on october 13th 2004 from cancer of the large intestine although he made a partial recovery after an operation in november of the previous year he relapsed his funeral was held on october 16th 2004 that's may rest th- in peace yeah 
Rest in peace. So it goes. So it goes. You uh, want to get into it a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, what is it? Um, so the story, the legend of the paper spaceship. I'm gonna level with you. It's it's structured in a very odd way. It's like very artistic. It's very it's very focused on aspects, and it moves a lot between sort of different voices. So I'm gonna do my best to tell sort of like an overarching story because a lot of it does read in a way like a fairy tale. Yeah, and we'll get in a little bit into some of those framing devices that differentiate between. There's a narrator telling the story, and the story's being told by characters within the story as well. Exactly. Uh, was it? So we have this. Um, we have an odd voice that takes place like like during the war. Halfway that, through the Pacific War. Yeah, exactly. And it's like this voice that comes in at the beginning, at the end, and sometimes intermittently in italics. Yes. But you have that voice, and then from there it goes into this voice from the beginning tells us now long years later I cannot shake the feeling that what she was always holding out of paper stood for no earthly pl- airplane, but for a spaceship sometime long ago, deep in those mountain recesses. Right. So the she that they're talking about is a woman named Asen. And uh, before we're really introduced to Asen, we learn about the woman who runs through the wilderness naked, chasing paper airplanes that never seem to fall. Where they see her most of the time is this place near her home called Endworld Mirror which is this place where the way that it's it's described is it seems like a place where people go to commit suicide like it's always shrouded in this weird mist and if you get close enough you see this this naked woman who's sort of like singing songs to herself and chasing a paper airplane her house is located near the mirror uh, or what's left of her house and uh, she is the last descendant of like the great family that lived in that house Yes. But, but since uh, her family has died in some traumatic way, and she has become essentially like an invalid, like she or like she wanders around the town and is sometimes clothed, and she sings like Ophelia from Hamlet. Yeah, and, and 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 the story comments about how the feeling is that of oh to see this great family uh, be brought so low mm-hmm. uh, that that this is the last remnant. Yeah, and it's and it gets even worse too because it's like. Because she's because she is touched the way that she is. Unfortunately, like a lot of the men of the village, uh, they sexually assault her. Yeah, her the way they describe it is that although her mind is fractured, her her youthful beauty is almost permanent. It's immortal. Yeah. It's beyond time. Yeah, I know. It's like and they describe it. It's like even though she's like she should be like in her late forties, she still looks like she couldn't be more than twenty. Yeah, and and the response by the village, it's. Just to look at it dispassionately, even it's it's pretty horrifying what they actually use her for. Yeah, no, the the men they use her for sex, and the women do nothing but like bitch about her. There was this this one like this one moment, all the women of the village got together, and one of them said that she had a vision that the only way to cure Osen of her madness is to dip her in this ice cool cold well in the middle of winter. And when they do that, she like almost dies of hypothermia. And then we find out that the woman who proposed that whole thing was just drunk, like after a ceremony. Um, but that woman, um, we don't know how or why, um, ended up walking herself into into Endworld Me- Mirror. The, the place for the spirits. Yeah. Yep. And we start to see this as a pattern. It's definitely not the only character that ends up walking into it. No. Um... So as the story goes on, uh, we find out that Asen becomes pregnant. Uh, the women of the village are like, I write about this. They get together. They're like, we have to take you to get an abortion. There's no way you can take care of your own child. 
and she's very defiant about the fact that she will have a child. It's the only time she really even speaks to yeah. them other than doing her nursery songs. Yeah, it's the only time she gets cogent, like, with them, and it's just like, no, you're not taking, like, you're not, I'm not having an abortion. So she you're not ha- taking Iman from me. Exactly, yeah. So she has her baby, who she names Iman, even though they, I can't remember what it was, we'll go to it when we get back into quotes, but the name that they wanted for the boy was the name for Common, because, like, his mother was, like, passed around by so many men in the village that it's like, oh, Common, that's funny. And she's like, no, I'm going to name my boy the name I want yeah, and, and, and just to clarify, as it's not horrible enough, it's not just the men in the village. Let's specifically say she's also considered a rite of passage for the younger yeah. men who haven't even had sex yet. There's a whole culture that's built up around this. Around mistreating this woman. Yes. Like... And so her being able to name her child is pretty much the only agency that she ever gets other than choosing not to wear clothes in the summer. Yeah. No, and of course, like, they, after her child is born, she's prompt, her child is a boy, is promptly taken away and raised by a guy in the general store. He's sort of like an, an observ, observant child. At first they think that he's crazy like his mom because he never speaks. And then eventually they realize that not only does he speak, but he's like... Super aware. He's super aware and super eloquent. And in fact, he can read minds. He can look into people's thoughts and see what they're thinking, and you know the the thoughts come to him. It's not like it's not like in the movies where like you hear thoughts. It's like he perceives their thoughts. Like uh, it's pretty next level. Um, they describe it as almost like kaleidoscopic shapes and visions scattering through his head. Oh, dude, that's I love that bit. No, and he's uh, he like hangs out outside this uh, this hangout for like the youth, uh, which you know eventually becomes a um, a night spot. For, uh, for some fornications, like, in the village. It's run by an ex-madam from Metropolis, it says. And he hangs around, but he just observes. But uh, he, this the whole while, he's getting more and more acquainted with what exactly humanity in this village is all about. And they seem to be, like, really into sex. Like, they seem to be, like, really sensuous and, like, kind of absurdly so. To the point where they see the boy, like, hanging around Takes, which is the, the spot, and they're like... Well, you know who his mother is. She's just a harlot. If you have him hanging around and looking at this, what did I tell you? He'll be on all the women, and you know, then where will we be? It's just so fucking offensive. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, but we'll we'll make him go live with like the spinster teacher. So he moves in with her, and she's like a really wonderful, good woman. But like because he can read thoughts, he can read that she's sexually frustrated and horny every night. Yeah, which is not great for him. No. Because it's like, because, and this is the thing that's the most fucked up, is like, what should the what his teacher, Mrs., what's her name? Mrs. Yoshimura? Yeah, Miss Yoshimura, the school teacher, has this one recurring fantasy that, of course, the boy can hear, and the fantasy is being the boy's mother. Like, you know, being like the woman who gets taken advantage of by all the village people. And it's like, that's really kind of fucked up. Like, I feel bad for Iman, like, where it's like, even that figure that's taking over his mother's position is like... And it's like, and it sucks too, because it's like she's keeping it inside. It's not like she's broadcasting this. She doesn't know anyone can hear it. No, it's not much worse for him because he really has no one to talk with about any of this or guide him through it. I mean, the only one he has, she can't tell him anything. No, and it's like, and that's the thing too, where it's like he can read everyone else's thoughts, but when he tries to read his mom's thoughts, he doesn't get anything but mist. Yep. And it's a mist that's actually like, it's around the mot. The mist is like a very environmentally present thing in this story. Right, it is omnipresent. Uh, it's on multiple layers of the story. It's in people's minds. It's a, it's it's actually physically there. 
Um, it's pervasive in the actual feeling of the story. The misses there are definitely on multiple levels. Exactly. So as time goes on, he tries to use this power that he has to glean more of his mother's story. So he'll meet everyone in the village and he'll get he'll get snippets. And he learns some stuff, but not a lot. He learns that um, one night all of the family was killed horribly and the only person left was her sitting in a corner, like playing with a toy and like singing rhymes and like covered in blood. There is a thing where it's like a lot of the a lot of the town are aware that something horrible happened in that house, but they're not really sure what it was. Yep, and they're definitely not very sympathetic. No. Later, he actually, he turns away a dude who's come to rape his mother. Like, he, he forcefully throws him out of his mother's house and sort of tries for, I guess, the first last time to really understand where he came from and what he sees the, the moment that he saw his mother's life before um, she was kind of transcended, like, whatever she was before, was being embraced by this creature or this man um, surrounded by like an explosion and it was uh, and then from there it's like there's really nothing that he gets from his mom and then later he gets this calling to go up into the mountains of some something that's calling him not like any other voice right so he does that and um, the mother realizes that she'll never see her son again so she goes out walking in in the, the village naked and some guy tries to sexually assault her and for the first time she act, she fights him off like she would just she was just passive until that point but it's at that point she like shoves the guy off and she calls him human filth and tells him to go off and die and that man walks into end world mirror and has has met a similar fate to that woman from before yep and and you know through all of this sort of timelessly between the soldier who's sort of semi-narrating the story and the nursery rhymes that are occasionally interspersed we kind of finally realize that her son is going home, I think. Yeah. And that, you know, she may pine for whatever she's missing for thousands of years, for however long it takes, but at least he got home. Exactly. And that's like, that's one of the things that I left off is there's a lot of play with the nursery rhymes in this. And I left them off because it's, they're all, they're all Japanese language. It's highly contextual. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, you should really read it to understand, but like, they they use in the in the the songs that are sung there are words that are replaceable like um like the word for uh one is a ship's hull right or one of the words for two is like machines like this it, it's this weird thing where it's like these these really weird like rhymes about sort of like giving up hope are actually about repairing a spaceship right and and that's what's so great is it, as you hear the soldier sound it out, he's like, no, this doesn't mean broken bow of a boat. This means broken ship that fell from the sky. Yeah. And he's piecing this all together and you're, you're sort of receiving the clues from all these different narrative points until it finally clicks together. So, yeah, that was, um, that is the plot of Paper Spaceship. It was really good. Uh, it, do you have any thoughts, like, straight off before we go on into quotes? Yeah. Warnings to people who might have some problems reading about the rape because there's just a lot of it. It's, mm. it's, it's pervasive in the story. It is. And I mean, if, if I were to say this dispassionately, if there weren't the science fiction elements, it's almost like a psychosexual study of the towns. Uh, I don't know how they understand sexuality and, and, and what they act like. If, it, if there weren't these sort of very emotionally distressing elements to the story it might almost be clinically interesting to see how this isolated town sort of treats sexuality in their mind and and the different ways that different people are treated based on how they're viewed sexually 
Yeah. It almost has an element to it as well. But but that's definitely what comes up, I think, is that the idea that this is a fairy tale, and there is a lot of that because of the nursery rhymes and sort of the fantastical elements to this, but it's very much what sticks out is the is the pure sexual violence and like the evil undercurrent of what man can do that's wrong. It definitely mm-hmm. clashes with the fairy tale aesthetic of it. And I think that's yeah. what stuck out for me the most is this is sort of because of the elements that um, that Tetsu was pulling from, you know, the influence from a lot of these greats like Heinlein, uh, you sort of get a mishmash of a lot of different science fiction and fantasy elements. And, yeah. and you have that mixed in with sort of stark, the, the human condition. I think that's what sticks out for me the most is the, the way those clash. No, I think, and I agree with you, like I actually agree with you super, but to an extent, there's an aspect of the story to me where it's like, it's really weird that it's so persistently a fairy tale underneath all the trauma, where it's like, there almost seems to be like, it, it's almost like, I would almost say that innocence wasn't lost necessarily as a result of trauma. Sure. The trauma is almost on top of, the the trauma that we perceive in the story, you could say, is not as bad as the trauma that we don't really ever really see, yeah. that we get pieces of that was somehow a billion times worse, and everything that comes after it is sort of like calm waves on a pool. It's almost nothing in comparison. Yeah. How about you? Probably the thing that really stuck with me the most about this story is just having it done from the point of view of some two people who are so outside. Right. There's something really illuminating about the story coming from the point of view of like two people who you would never listen to and who I mean, in the end, are, pro- are aliens. So there's this weird sort of like... And, you know, they, they can, if they want to, inspire people to walk into their own deaths. So it kind of reminds me of that, like, old fairy tale, like or like God's tale, sort of like Odin or Zeus show up to your house in disguise, and it's like you got to be nice to them or else some fucked up shit's going to happen. Right. But it's like, that's this kind of fear that happened with me with this story, where it's like, you know, you treat these people like you treat any person you can mistreat, but you have no idea who they are or what they can do. Yeah, you, you certainly don't realize you're going to be shouted at as being human filth when the bill finally comes to pay. No, exactly. And I wonder about that shit, too. Like, uh, it was at the end of uh, District 9, where the one prawn managed to get the ship working and flew up into space. Their weaponry still works. Yep. And you know what? I would totally fucking understand if they bombed Earth. I would like, understand that, too, very easily. I would not want it to happen, but, like, I'm, honestly, when you treat living things like that that's what you come to expect and it did seem towards the end like both the mother and the son were kind of losing their patience with humanity right the mother uh, was almost encouraging them up to a point to like still love them anyway Mm -hmm. but there's only so far that that will take you considering their treatment well no and it's like she encourages him to do that but as soon as he leaves and she realizes she'll never see her son again She goes walking around, and she, for the second time in the story, asserts her own will when she tells a man not to sexually assault her. And he doesn't listen, so she kills him. Yep. And it's like, yeah, it seems like they both both reach this moment where they have, like, lost the patience. And and we'll probably do this quote, but to undercut, to, not to undercut, to uh, underline kind of what you were just saying... Part of what happens there is that uh, he gets fear in his eyes. Even before she makes him do that stuff with her mind, he can tell that she's there. And that not just that she's there, but that there's a white hot will underneath that she could have used at any time. And it terrifies him. But then he comes out of it and tries to reassert his will Mm -hmm. on reality. And she's not having any of it. Yeah, this is really good. Uh, Shall we get into quotes? Let's do it. 
Do you mind if I start with the beginning quote, since we talked a little bit about the uh, soldier? No, please, let's do beginnings, beginnings. Halfway through the Pacific War, I was sent from my unit to a village in the heart of the mountains, and there I lived for some months. I still recall clearly the road leading into that village. And in the grove of bamboo trees beside the road, the endless flight of a paper airplane and a beautiful naked woman running after it. Now, long years later, I cannot shake the feeling that when she was always folding out of paper stood for no earthly airplane, but for a spaceship, sometime long ago deep in those mountain recesses. That's the first one, and it really does a good job, I think, of establishing, especially because this is, like we said, these are the italicized portions, mm-hmm. but it, having him give this instant explanation to us, even before we actually find out the reality of the whole story, it's a really great way to let it unfold. It is. Uh, hey, I like that pun. Ha. Huh. Favorite airplane. No pun intended. <laughs> no, I really like that, and it's um, it's actually like it's a trope that I kind of super enjoy. That like like when a soldier is talking, it's like when I saw the shit, what all I could think about was this one moment of like peaceful weirdness. And there's a lot of movies that start out that way that I enjoy. Yeah, and it does, it does a good job of evoking that feeling. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna describe uh, Edward Mir. Yes. Um, Edward Mir. Uh, the Uva Eri no Numa. After they had laughed and danced through the uh, promises and passions of living youth, old people came, once came often to this place to end misery of their old age by throwing themselves into the swamp's murky waters. Superstitions hold that Endworld Mare swims with the spirits of the dead. To placate any of the lingering dead, therefore, these valley folk had heaped numerous mounds of stones into a small open space near the mirror. This place they named the Saino Kawara, the earthly shore where the journey over the great water, waters begin. They gathered here once a year for memorial services, when they burnt incense and clapped hands and sent their prayers across the wide waters to the shore of the nether world. It's a really great de- uh, description. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, talking of this sort of being a sci-fi fantasy, setting the elements for it being a fairy tale within that, Mm-hmm. Um, we really start to build this idea of the old myths and the old world. Yeah. Now it says, uh, was it for, um, the village children gave the mirror a wide berth. Round, li- uh, round licked and covered stones, rain-soaked rotting paper dolls, creaking wooden signs with mysterious indecipherable characters inscribed on them. For children, these things all bespoke the presence of ghosts and ogres and nightmare encounters with demons. So it's like, it's very much like a haunted wood. It is. And of course, we have uh, the quote right after that, which is, Sometimes, however, the children would unintentionally come close enough to glimpse the dank mirror, and on one such occasion, they were chasing the madwoman, Osin, who was flying a paper airplane. Say, guys, Osin's still running around naked. Hey, Osin, don't you want any clothes? All the children jeered Osin. For adult and child alike, she is a handy plaything. But Osin had a toy, too. A paper airplane as thin as sharp pointed as a spear. So, I mean, we, we have that section before where you talk about this, like, haunted woods, and she's sort of the witch or the unearthly apparition mm. that hangs at the end of it. Mm. But but it doesn't seem like they have the same sort of reverence for her as yeah. they do for the place she lives Well, in. no, and this is, like, and actually, and it's weird, because I, like, I, I caught it the first one, but I didn't underline it, and it's, like, it is such, like, an unsettling description, but it's, like, uh, all the children jeered Osin, for adult and child alike, she is a handy plaything. It's pretty creepy. So the children fuck with her because she's crazy, and the men sexually assault her because she's crazy and won't fight back. Yep. No matter what your needs are, she's perfect for them. 
And it's like, and it's it it is like interesting to like describe her as that, like you know, sort of this this force that's like outside of nature that lives by this that lives essentially on the teetering edge of life and death of nature and of of nature and culture. Yeah, like, and she is even without knowing that she's an alien, she and her son are treated like others. And this story does a good job of separating the idea of what you would treat an alien like versus what you would treat someone who is alien or outside of the system. They do yeah. a good job of differentiating those definitions Yeah. and still having them both be in the same story. No, I totally agree. Is it, um, I'm going to read about Osun's body. Do it. Osun, whose body is ageless, steps lightly over the grass, reaches the mirror where the enfeebled old cast themselves away to die. The paper airplane flies on against the mist before her. No one knows what keeps the plane flying so long. Once Osun lets go of it, the airplane flies on seemingly forever. That's all there is to it. A mad woman is Osun, going about naked in summer, and in the winter wearing only a thin robe. Yeah, I. it's such great imagery in this story in particular. You just have this sort of ageless, ghostly beauty wandering around naked, throwing these paper airplanes that seemingly never land Mm -hmm. it just it builds up this really creepy and beautiful image in your mind it does and it's and actually it's one of those things that i was wondering about where like um i feel like this the story kind of really grows up with you where it's like it starts out very like very fairy tale like and then you start getting to the sexual assaults and then from then on like you know you have to deal with school and then in the end leaving home so it gets very adult by the end like and i feel like i'm starting to notice this this catalyst starting here that's very interesting so i mean i really like that it it's almost the idea of rather than going from like fairy tale to sci-fi alien story we kind of have more this sort of idea of maturation like you start the story reading simple descriptions and simple ideas and then it sort of evolves with the reader as they kind of mature through the story into the real world implications of what you're reading exactly and it's not till later till they start unpacking the japanese puns so it's like you have to get to the point where you you know i guess have command of language enough to decipher puns Right. I wish I could read this in the original uh, translation. Oh, me too. I'm sure. Th- I'm sure there's even with this amazing uh, uh, English translation. I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff with wordplay that we're missing. This is a hard bit. Osin, uh, community property. Harlow to all who came to her for it. The butt of a randy male superiority. Coming to know the secrets of her body was a kind of rite of passage for all the young men of the village. Osin, the village idiot. This was the other reason why the villagers sheltered her. Osin was the only daughter and survivor of the village's most ancient family. Among those who lived deep in the mountains and still pay homage to the wolf god, the status of a household the status of a household was regarded as supremely important. That such an imbecile should be the sole survivor of so exalted a household gave everyone a limitless sense of superiority. Osin, plaything for the village sports. Her house stood on a knoll, from where you could look down on Endworld Mar. Perhaps it was better to say her house was left rather than stood. Yeah, boy, I mean, you, you really get the sense of how the villagers see her. It's community property first, harlot first, mm-hmm. sexual conquest first, and then they sheltered her also because she couldn't even take care of herself. That's almost secondary, and they barely give her that. I mean, mm-hmm. what she has is just left alone. It's not exactly kept up for her. Yeah, no, and it's actually, and it, this it's really fucked up to me because it's like, I like to look for the perverse dark side of things, and I do believe there's a perverse dark side of charity. Sure. It means I can decide to save your life. Like, I can decide to be, like, cool to you. 
and you owe me, like, and, you know, basically you just owe me your life, you know, I'm just such a good person, but it's like, no, you're, like, your investment in this woman is twofold, because it's like, and I also, that's, like, one of the things that fucks me up so much, is that it was, the fact that she was the only surviving member of this house that was super respected provoked in the community a sexual assault from all the men who realized that now she's been knocked down a peg or two, and then charity from their wives, who now get to say that that poor idiot from, like, the high house has fallen on hard times and they can feel superior themselves. Yeah, seemingly everybody benefits from helping her except for her. Yeah. No, it's like, and I also love that because it, it reminds me a little of that, like, um, like the beauty of the prose of uh, the fall of the House of Usher, where it's like there's an indistinction between the house and the and the family, but it's like perhaps it's better to say the house was left rather than it stood. Yeah, it's a really good way to put it. Once, when a shrill group of cackling old women gathered at the well to hold yearly memorial services and pray to the wolf god, one of them was suddenly stricken with a divination and proclaimed that if Osin were soaked in the well, her madness would abate. This cheered up all of those who envied Osin's great beauty. So on that day, twelve years ago, poor Osin was stripped to the raw before the eyes of the assembled women and dumped into the water-frigid well water. Winter. An hour later, her body blushed a livid purple. Osin fainted and was finally hauled out. Sadly, her idiocy was not cured. Story has in that the old crone who blurted the augury was drunk on the millet wine being served at the memorial service, and that afterward she fell into N-World Mirror and drowned because of the wine. From then on, once someone undressed her, Osin stayed that way. If someone draped a robe over her, she kept it on. Since someone undressed her nearly every night and left her as she was in the morning, Osin most often went around naked. Beautiful as the men might find Osin's body, others thought it was best to keep the children from seeing her. Therefore, each morning, a village woman came around to see that she was dressed. Osin stayed stone still when being dressed, though sometimes she smiled happily. She went on singing her songs. Folding one, da-dum. Fold a second one, ta-tum. A third one, fold, tro-la. Fly on, I say, fly. Fly ever on to my star. Folding her paper airplanes while she murmured and sang. And one day soon, to the stunned amazement of the villagers in eventual focus of their great uproar, Osin's stomach began growing larger. No one had ever stopped to think that Osin might someday be gotten with child. Which, okay, first of all, fuck these people. Fuck these people every way. Oh, you didn't? You didn't think that that might happen? You didn't? Yeah, it, it's it's so interesting that in almost all the dealings with her, her actual well-being is, is almost second or even third mm-hmm. consideration, if at all. No, and it's that actually, it totally breaks my heart that it's like after she's dunked in the well in the middle of winter by these horrible drunk women who just want to shame her, like, and she's just a poor girl who, like, who, who isn't even all there to begin with, so they dunk her, and then after that, it says from then on, when someone undressed her, she stayed undressed. She couldn't even be bothered to, like, like, put clothes on. Like, and that, like, not, it was more like, what's the point? Like, there's an aspect of this where it's like, I know it sounds kind of fucked up, but I know that she's, like, she is, like, sort of a beyond human. She definitely has a light in her that's like her son, and I feel like she definitely is extraterrestrial, but, like, that Dr. Manhattan level where it's just like, what the fuck does it matter if I put clothes on? And, like, and, and that's the considering, best Considering, yeah. It's like, and I hate to say this, but I think even her treatment of the, uh, the, the treatment of her by them is almost, she doesn't even consider it anything. And she's so beyond, she's transcended almost everything, but her, her mind is still barely there and her body's still barely there. Mm-hmm. No, and it's like, it's so fucked up, too, because it's like, the you know, a woman would come by, it's like, oh, we don't want the children to see her naked, and it's like, 
You fucking need, help this woman. Yeah, you need to look at what your fucking society is doing to this woman and not just, oh, you need to, and it's like when people freak out where it's like, oh no, tits on television, you gotta, that's wrong, you gotta cover that up. It's like, you should really talk to your kids about how to treat women. Like, yep. I mean, you know, maybe explain to them a little bit rather than making it be on whoever's, somebody else's fault. You know what I mean? It's, it's pretty hard to read. A boy was born and they named him Amon. When he was nearly named Tomo, common because osin was passed around and around among the village men the old midwife quickly intervened as the baby was coming out osin cried emon the woman reported that's what she said i wonder what she meant and so we find out later that that's a song but right i also love that immediately like just in terms of how horrible these people are like they deliver a baby it's like i know you should call your kid tomo because it means common because he had all the men in town and it's like can you just just, like, for a second, give this woman some sort of fucking dignity for, like, a moment? No. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to imagine, but it's very well described, so it's not too hard to imagine. Uh, was it, she sings a song, Escape with the Amon who doesn't know, Flow, flow, and grow old, All hopes dashed in this mountainous land, No fuel for the pilgrim's fires, No swinging heaven's way, Amon has died, alone, so alone, Went up in longing for his distant home. Yeah, some of these fairy tales, uh nursery rhymes they're they're really melancholy they're just they're incredibly sad mm-hmm. you know what i mean there's a real echoing especially when you find out that these are mistranslations uh from long ago messages about what actually happened in the situation it's mm-hmm. so sad that these are all sung as just like fun little kid songs yeah uh everyone so pitied Amon, Amon, but as he grew he in no way acknowledged their gestures of concern and because of this everyone came to think the mother's madness circulated in her silent child's blood. Not so. When he was awake, Amon could hear everyone's voices, though they weren't voices in the usual sense. He heard them in his head, voices of vibration passing through the air, sound spoken with a will. What Amon heard was always accompanied by shapes. When someone uttered the word mountain, the the syllables mountain resounded in the air. The shape projected into Amon's mind with the word, would differ depending on who spoke it, but always the hazy mirage of a mountain would appear. Listen as you will to the words, go to the mountain. It is possible to distinguish five syllables, but in young Amon's case, overlapping the sound waves, he could sense some one, he could sense some one thing, a stirring, a motion that swept into a dim mountainous shape. For the tabula rasa mind of the infant, this is an enormous burden. Amon's tiny head was always filled with pain and tremendous commotion. The minds and voices of the people around him tangled like a kaleidoscopic shape scattering through his head, like voices and images on the screen of a continuously jammed television set. It is a miracle Amon did not go mad. I love that. I know. I love that too. It's like... We just keep getting more elements added to the story. We've got aliens, we've got haunted families and uh, suicide rivers, and now we have psychic ability child. This child who was never wanted or asked for by anybody, but who his mother very lovingly named, and now who he's stuck with all of these horrible people's minds shattering into his own. That yeah. that last part of that that quote really got me. It's a miracle he did not go mad. Yes. I know I would have with this town's voices in my head. You know, and it reminds me, have you ever, like, I've met people like that in my life where it's like, um, like I just find out a little bit of some shit that they've gone through. I'm like, how are you talking to me right now and not in a padded cell or something? Yep. Like, not talking shit on people who can survive intense traumas. I admire it, you know, and it's, you know, 
It, it's that. Like... It's exactly that. You can it, you can only just barely comprehend what they're able to stand, and and only in the sense that you know that you probably wouldn't be able to handle the same thing. Exactly. That was it. I love this, and it's a little bit after. It's like yes. the Iman's mind was an unseen mirror reflecting what these men were really thinking. It differed only slightly with each man. So not only do you get this like barrage of, of things coming at you in the same way with all of their fucked up intentions and all of their shitty innuendos. And the thing that's saddest to me is that he only realizes that it, it differs slightly depending on what human you're talking to. Like, they each kind of have the same gross, lustful, like, mean thoughts. Yeah, and, and uh, like, another sentence or so later, he the, his first words are, Why does everyone want to sleep with Osen, he asked. Osen, he said, not mother. Yeah. Perhaps because he kept seeing things through the villager's mind. Amon was unable to know Osen as anything more than just a woman. That's exactly what we're talking about. It's like, it may have differed a little bit from person to, from man to man, but... He doesn't even have the benefit of having his own impression of his mother. He sees her the way they see her, which is just, it's its too awful for me almost to comprehend. That's no, weird. it's like, it should be fucking traumatizing. <laughs> yeah, how could he have his own idea of identity uh, alone just from, like, everybody knows that he's this sort of ostracized, unwanted child, like, but to add on top of that that he can hear what they're thinking about it, not even the stuff that they awfully say out loud, but what they really truly think, it's pretty gross. Not a, not a power I feel very envious of, I'll say that. No, definitely not. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Amon's mind-reading powers intensified. Among them, as he roved over the thoughts uh, night after night, he could see so clearly into their thoughts that it was like focusing on bright scenes in a collage. He was therefore all the more puzzled by his mother, Osen. She was different. Didn't the thoughts of a human being exist in the mind of an idiot? The thoughts of the villagers were like clouds drifting in the blue sky, but what they thought was so transparent. But in Osen's mind, thick white mist flowed always, hiding everything. No words, no shapes, just emotion, close to fear turning, close to fear turning there. As Amon kept peering into the mist, he began to feel that Osen let the men take her so that she might escape her fear. Amon gave up his search for his mother's mind and returned to the days of his endless reading. So I think that that's interesting where it's like when he sees, like he tries so hard to get into his mother's mind, but when he comes to the understanding that she like allows herself to be repeatedly raped because it's like, it's better than the trauma that left her this way. Yeah. And she's sort of transcending the fear that she has. Yeah. She, like, she accepts the rape because she accepts the fear of the now as opposed to the fear of whatever drove her here. Which is now... Terrifying. It, it is terrifying, and it's now interesting that I think of the moment that she refuses it. Right. Like, when... She, when um, and in, the only reason she would fear that, or would refuse it in, in this rationalization, would be as if, in the end, she got over that bigger fear. Right. Because I love... I, I really just love this... Um, it's uh, at the beginning of section six, but uh, they say that time weathers memory away. In truth, the weight of years bears down on a memory, compressing it into a hard, jewel-like clarity. A mystery slept in that village and sleeps there still. Over the years, my thoughts have annulled around these puzzling events, but the mystery will remain forever uncovered unless I go there and investigate in earnest. I have tried to return many times. A year ago, I came to within 50 kilometers of the village, and then for no rational reason, I can summon up. I turned aside, went to another, more amiable place. Before embar embarking on these journeys, I am always overcome by an unshakable reluctance almost as if I were under a hypnotic compulsion to stay clear of the place. Right? 
Which, it also makes me think that if this is taking place after her son has gone home, that that may have been a turning point for her. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this village may be impossible to get back to for people who don't live there anymore. Yeah. If there is people still left in that village. Like, who knows what no, could happen by then. They bring up there are only two people who live in the village who are from outside of it. Right. Like, there's the woman who runs the cat house, and there's the teacher. And... Other than that, like, it seems weird. Like, it seems almost like its style, like, where, like, somehow collectively the, the village has gotten, like, this mind whammy put on them. Because, like, they, they seem, they don't, they're really weird people. Like, yeah, overall, the, the picture that we get of these people, especially, like, almost in an isolationist kind of sense, is, like, it highlights the fairy tale aspect. It feels like another world. Mm-hmm. No, it is. Yeah, it's it's far. It's a land far away, as it were. From the place where the columns fell from the sky in fire. Yeah. Yep. Towards the end, he confronts his mother. Is it? And this is this is probably this is one of my favorite bits, and it just sort of speaks to like you know when you when you feel misanthropic thoughts, and if anyone has a right to feel them, it's these people. Um, but it's Amon talking to his mom. Uh, Amon was on the of the unswayable opinion that all villagers were obscene beyond the powers of any description, especially Osin and himself. They were the worst offenders. Though uh, through the minds of the men, he was constantly privy to Osin's careless, wanton rut, and the pain that he was always Osin's child was heavy upon him. Ever she bared her body to the to the men, and Amon hated her. He hated the men who came to her, and in his superlative nine-year-old mind, this wretched emotion that transformed into something into see hatred for all the human race. It was on one of his infrequent visits to his mother's that he last ventured this, his anger and struck an approaching man with a hurled stone. Drop dead, you little bastard, the man raged. Don't you go making any trouble if you know what's good for you. Who do you think's keeping you alive? Amon returned to the parlor after that man left and gazed at his silent mother's dazzling naked body. He shook with unconcealed fury. I want to kill him. I will kill him. Everybody. Osin reached out to him then. My son, try to love them, she murmured. You must if you are to live. Stunned, Amon fell into her arms and clung to her. For the first time in his life, he wept, unable to control the flow of tears. And I think that's interesting, because it's like him and Osin, they only cry each once in the story. Yep. And that's what, that was his. Yeah, the, the story almost only offers both of them single moments to actually be completely true to their pain, mm -hmm. and, and allow them to vent it. And uh, I, I still find myself up, uh, tearing up every time I read that scene. It's, it's really emotional. It is. No, and it's like... If you've ever been in a situation where it's like you're you're meeting a parent who you've been taken away from, where it's like, because that's the thing that I think is really fucked up about this story is that she fought so hard to keep this child and she doesn't even get to raise it. No. Like, you know, and he gets passed around the town. But what's even more fucked up is this guy, the John, who shows up and it's like, who do you think's taking care of you? You know, and it's like, go fuck yourself. The only reason you take care of my like me is because you all like enjoy the repeated process of raping my mother. Like, yeah. it's it's it reminds me of that just like the like the hatred in him it's like it reminds me of just like rorschach hating men absolutely rorschach hating men and rorschach hating prostitutes or women that have any sex at all he projects the anger from both of those things and it's kind of a similar situation where it's just like the focus of all of that anger is standing right in front of him and you know of course he wants to kill him mm -hmm. who wouldn't no and it's i love that too where it's like you know and it's not and that was that was not even in that was uh, what I was trying to say is that's untagged. So it's like, it's not in quotation marks where it's like, 
I want to kill him, I will kill him. I think that the implication is Osen's reading his mind Absolutely. as he's thinking that. I think I think the same thing. I think it's definitely a because of the the parentheses, I think that that's definitely a mind conversation that's happening. Yeah. And it's like and it's great. And I love that she like, and it's weird to me because it's like, it's so very, we were talking about this on the way over. It's so very enigmatic to me that like she, he has that very, we would both agree, like a, a sane reaction. Like, you know, it's, it's understandable to be that upset about that situation. And then she reaches out and she says, you must love them. And she says it out loud. She does. And it's like, and it's like, that is, that is already like such an, a weird thing for a rape victim to be saying. Like, and I don't mean weird as in like bad. Like, I mean. It's not what you would expect. It's not what you would expect. Like, and that she's the one telling him to, to steal his anger. Other than the, the, the couple times when she loses control herself and, and gets people to kill themselves, it's an enormous amount of uh compassion on her part for her son to say that in that moment i'm not going to necessarily say that it's compassion for them it might be to some extent but i feel like it's more directed at him yeah. he doesn't want this for him she doesn't now and speaking of that do you mind if i if i read the calling do it on little cared to think deeply about the meaning of osin's words and he hated uh, and his hatred towards the human race still filled his heart but now he visits his mother far more often it was during one of these visits as he sat on the porch beside Osen and some days or weeks later that Amon heard a strange voice. The voice did not come as sound in the air or as a voice reaching into his mind with shapes and contexts. It was a calling, and it was for Amon alone, a tauntless to uh, a tauntness to drag him to a tauntness to drag him to its source. A thrown rope pulling, usually grabbed in a neat plain cotton robe. Osin was staring down at the long valley, her mind empty as always. Who is it? Amon called. Osin turned her head to watch Amon as he scrambled to his feet and shouted the question. The vacuous expression on her face suddenly blanched, frozen for an instant in a look of dread. Where are you? Amon shouted, as if pulled up by Amon's voice. Osin got slowly. Uh, Osin got slowly to her feet and pointed to the mountains massed on the horizon. It's over there, she said. That way. Amon hardly glanced at her as he started down the stone, stone stairs, and then he was gone. He didn't even try to look back. Time frozen in yellow sunlight for the mad woman, and then melted again. Osin wandered blindly about, racked with sobs. At some point, arriving at the small water wheel shack, the household that housed a village, the village millstone. The violence of her weeping resounded against the boards. She may have lost her capacity for thought, but she could still feel the agony of this final parting from her only child. One of the villagers catching sight of her trembling figure as, as, she, as he passed by, approaching her with a broad grin, reached for her body with calloused hands. Now, now, don't cry, Asen, he said. Here, you'll feel lots better. The look she fixed him with was so hard and venom-filled, the first of its like he had ever seen from her. For a moment, he felt a faint rousing, a fierce shake, in, shake his heart then slapped his work clothes with gusto and laughed at his own stupidity. Now what in the hell? And cursing Austin, he grabbed her to he grabbed her to force her to the grassy earth. Austin slapped his hands away. Human filth, she shouted clearly, commandingly. Her words echoed and re-echoed in the stony hollows around the watermill. Be gone and die. As Ammon hurried off down the road, the witless villager walked placidly into Enworld Mare, a dreamy look transfixing his face as he sank unknown beneath the dark and secret waters. In the bamboo grove, white mist danced again on the back of the air, and a white naked woman figure ran lightly, lightly, chasing a paper airplane that flew on forever.
At the Sai no Kawara, the earthly shore where children come to bewail the passing of those who have crossed over the great waters, there is a weather-beaten sign of wood inscribed with characters that can only be spottily read. It seems so easy to wait one thousand, nay, ten thousand years, driven mad with longing for the star of my native home. <sighs> Fuck. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, Amon, he gets the calling, and his mother tells him what it is, and knows that this is saying goodbye to her child, and for whatever reason, she's not going back. I honestly, I don't understand that piece of it. Like, why she doesn't go with him. Or, like, why the calling's only for him. Yeah, I mean, that may be the mystery of it, right? Like, I don't know. I have I have a lot of theories. Um, whatever. It seems like if she hadn't been emotionally broken by the whole experience, that maybe she could have gone back at any time. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, maybe her people or her planet only finally sensed him or whatever's in the ship that responds to psychic signals. There's a lot of ways it could go, but ultimately I think that the mist and she are tied to this place Mm -hmm. and maybe she can't leave. I think you might be right. In one way or another, if it's her or if she's imposed this on herself in one way or another, the calling was meant for him. Yeah. Not for her. No, and it's like, I wonder if it's like, if there's just, I think you might be right where it's like, maybe it's just like, maybe it's just too broken. Yeah. Yeah. I, for whatever reason, whether she chose to do this to herself or it's her own choice in response to what actually happened. Either way, it does seem like it was not in the end meant for her to ever leave. And that may be why she's in the place that she's in right now and why she says you have to love them because to her, maybe she's, she can't leave this place. Yeah. Now, that's actually kind of crazy to think about it in that in that term of being, like, you know, sort of a constant exile, or, like, being exiled and... Yeah, and we'll never know whether it's self-imposed or not, because, you know, the crash is one thing, but it sounds like she should have been able to just go to her spaceship and leave, mm-hmm. if, if what we're understanding is correct, and you know, we'll never know really what happened to Amon. We don't have this thing about, like, and as the villager stepped coldly into the water there was a blast from overhead or something we don't yeah. get anything Eamon just leaves the story and yeah. his mother no and like for for a spaceship that's like we don't know if it works we know it's broken and we know that there's like there could maybe be like code in the in the weird regional like children's rhymes that can help them fix it right but that's also still a question for not right now like right and ultimately this does end like a fairy tale which i really like it's just sort of the mystical elements go back from whence they came, and the ghosts go back to haunting the woods, mm-hmm. and uh, and the soldier can never get back in. No, and it's and this is a thing that like I feel like there is sort of an, an odd pushing forward though that does happen at the end of it because it's like you know the with Emerald Mirror and the spaceship up in the mountain and the thick mist and it being sort of this weird like suicidal place. Yes. Like, it seems like a place that's sort of, like, wrought with tragedy and death and a death that we're all sort of, like, marching towards. They are these kind of creatures that live on a on a weird, like, metaphysical fringe. Right. But the thing that I find super interesting is, after a point, like, these two, these two characters, the son physically, I guess, and the mother, like, in terms of her own body, sort of, like, assert a new boundary. Like, he hears the calling and is going to the spaceship, and what I find interesting is after she loses her son, she couldn't, the woman who couldn't be bothered to, like, put clothes on, like, who was just so beyond that she wouldn't, she wouldn't even slap away someone who was trying to sexually assault her, gets to the point where, after she's parted with her son, she actually is so, so distraught, so irate. Not only will she, it's the first time she says no to being sexually assaulted, like, that she 
fights it. Right. And then kills the man who tried to do it. I like to think this is the last time that that happens. I like well. to I like to think so too. I like to think that every man who tries to give Osin a hard time after this is going to have a nasty fucking surprise. Yep, or end up in the mirror at the very least. Yeah. No, and it's like and there's there's a part of me that's like that that kind of sees that aspect of it as a happy ending where it's like It might be. And it's maybe like she sort of when she saw like what what her victimization had done to her son or like what like the sort of the trauma that 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 they had both accrued that she that I feel like now she's dealing with right like now she's like she's not letting the trauma make her inactive you might even go so far as to say that the fog was caused by her and that she was blocking the calling from coming to her son I didn't even think of that you're probably right it could be I mean, you know, that may, she may have been holding off those signals to return this whole time, you know, she wanted a son. Because it's, it's the same word. It's the same, the mist that's used to describe the surrounding area is the same mist that's in her mind. Like It's just a speculation, but I think that maybe, as, as she said, she realized that this, this is what he needed and that she couldn't allow the victimization to continue any further. But with that, she could not keep being the same person she was anymore. Yeah. With him gone, there was no reason for her to be. And I, 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 I like to think that maybe both of their lives were improved after this. I hope so. I mean, I feel like they've improved it for no other reason than they're not where they were. From their own improvement. Yeah. Either way, whatever happens to them, I agree. I think that, that maybe they've grown. No, and it's, this really was... And actually, and I, I realized that too, where it's like these... I'm starting to see the link after we've sat down and talked them through more, but just this and Triceratops, where it's like, they're very much based on special, like, a special understanding of reality between two parents, between a parent and a child. Boy, yeah, that's a really good connector. I hadn't thought of that either. I, I think that the, my initial readings of this, the loss was what was in my face so much before, and then, you know, on second reread, kind of the idea of finding or losing childhood innocence. Mm-hmm. But it definitely seems much more like it's like growth with the journey of a parent and a child. I definitely yeah. think those are the those are the heart of both the stories. No, and it's like and it's one of the things that like bums me out about most like coming of age literature like that we were talking about earlier where it's like with um triceratops is oh adults. Like adults just don't see. But in that in that story, the father can see them too. Just like in this, the the mother is the mother also has some latent telepathic ability that, right. that her son has. So there's it really it's really interesting to watch a parent and a child grow together, which I think is definitely the more natural like a more natural depiction than oh well parents just don't understand and children are magic. Yeah, and I think if any story needed it, it's definitely the story of uh, of the two of them because I think they both that's what they were both missing, I think, is why she didn't allow them to, to not let her have the child. And even with that, he was still not allowed to grow up with his mother. And both of them were forced to hear the squawkings of of all of these bugs around them, basically making them go crazy. They both deserved that growth that they finally got from getting closer with each other. Yeah. And I, and I love it, too, where it's like he, like, and this is, and God forgive me, I'm going to fucking bring up, like, Twilight now. Uh, but no, it's like, it's that bullshit that, like, Edward says with Bella, where it's like, you know, I can read everyone's thoughts, but I can't read yours. And it's like, that weird, like, refreshing thing that, like, I imagine if you had telepathy, it would be a fucking nightmare. I wouldn't want to hear, like, the deepest, most inner thoughts of every single person. I would just hate them all. Which is what happens to our protagonist. Right? Except for the one person you could find who gives you the silence or whose mind is listening to. And it's like, no, exactly. And the only person he can hang out with 
to like and he tries to like probe but it's like i wonder if there was like a little aspect of like joy between him and his mother because it's like if he was around her he didn't have to worry about hearing some 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 bullshit right i mean you know like he said eventually he came back to the the curiosity of wanting to probe her again and figure out what it was that was lying beneath but it seems like he visited her a lot and that that alone was really healing for both of them yeah. to be able to have that. Which I like that because I feel like, you know, I've been distant with parents at, at aspects of my life and it's like that was a thing where like, like I could have learned that lesson a lot sooner. Yeah, I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, I mean, it, these stories both definitely teach you to open yourself to experiences new whether they be ones that could hurt you or ones that could make you grow and change or or a combination of both of them. I think that's what both of them teaches you is it's never too late to still be a child or to grow up whatever place you're in and to find those connections still. Uh, so do you have uh, any moments of premature enlightenment? Moments of premature enlightenment? Uh, quite a few, actually. Um, I love the idea that this story keeps bouncing back and forth narratively because it made me feel immersed in the world. And, you know, I feel like the real moment of shock and awe for me in this story was this psychic, the psychic stuff. You know what I mean? Like, it, it just really added this extra thing of, like, illustrating the characters in the story whose minds were truly open and the characters in the story who were bit players. Despite the damage that they were able to do, which was great, they really, everyone who was not the two main characters, they really had no agency. As, yeah. as, as much damage as they could do, they really didn't have any roles. And I think that that's what's so great, is showing the other in this story, the the, the aliens, had the most heart and insight. Uh, especially considering it's a story written about humans, and by a human, obviously. Mm-hmm. It really makes you think about, like, well, what is alien? Yeah. In our own culture, and for yeah. our species. Well, no, and actually, and this is a thing that reminded me of when we did The Savage Mouth, like, this sort of this sort of pervasive misanthropy in the savage mouth is turned on the self, but uh, I feel like in the, the paper spaceship, it gets it gets turned out. Like Right, well, it, exactly. In savage mouth, you have only one mind. Other than the people at the end of it, like the cops and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that are sort of trying to stop spreading this madness. Uh, and in this story, what is there to be con- contained? You know what I mean? Like, everyone's minds are an open book to these two people. It, it, it's really interesting. That's it. I feel like um, my biggest moment of, like, premature enlightenment in this story, it really just, it came from the moment where, where Osen said no. Actually, both times Osen said both no. Both times Osen said no. Which, yeah. like, don't get me wrong, like, I'm, I'm a pro-choice dude. Like, I think that if you don't want to have a baby, you shouldn't have to. Like, it's your body, your choice. Right. That being said, your body, your choice, and Osen decided to have her baby, and, like, despite the fact that people were pressuring her not to, she's like, no, you don't get to decide what I do with this. No, and not only that, but if she had let them, she knew that they did not have her best interests at heart at all. Uh, It it wouldn't have been... there, There was no choice other than her making the choice. Yeah. And it's even more fucked up because it's like, you know, I guess she wasn't all there, but it's like, I wonder, because like he has these moments with his mother where it's like, are you crazy or are you just playing crazy? It's both. It is. It's a little both. I don't think she can always control it, but she can sometimes. Well, no, and it's like, and I also feel like we talked about this a while ago where it's like that whole, that whole conversation we had of like whether or not Hamlet's crazy or Ophelia's crazy. It's like, I don't know. They seem to be acting very rationally given the things they've been through. (laughs) Yeah. Given what's happened to them. 
what else would a rational mind do in that situation? Yeah. So it's like, you know, oh, she's just so weird. She, like, wanders around naked singing songs. And it's like, yeah, she's been raped and traumatized. Uh, raped and traumatized and, like, also everything else on top of that and for it's, years. And there's and there's a and there's an aesthetic trope about that that I think is interesting is the you know the raped woman who refuses to put clothes on. Actually no, I'm not or you know like the the women are it's like, "Oh, you can't be naked around the children." And it's like, "Go fuck yourself." Like their their dad or husband or brother made her naked already and didn't bother to put clothes on her. Right, because as though those ecstasies are being uh, observed for her in any yeah, way. It's like, oh, well, I mean, if you were raped, you should at least cover it up. And Osen's entire presence, like, slaps that mentality in the face. Like, it just won't let them forget. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they try their best. Like, they they go on, it's like, oh, isn't that weird? That weird old, that old mad woman. Whatever she does that's weird or out of place... They're able to write it off for a little bit, but the few moves she makes of her own agency, they're not able to write off, and they have to yeah. live with those choices that she makes, regardless of how cogent she seemed to be when she was making. And it, it it does really... This story is, in another sense, definitely about not being a victim. And given the circumstances, considering I, you could say she could very easily accept being a victim, given her circumstances, she's a very strong character, both she and her son, and... Um, I'm not sure what to do with that information, especially considering the, the, the few times she's allowed to be given a choice. How strong she seems, despite that. Yeah. No, and it's, uh, yeah, no, and it's like, it's the the only two times we really see this woman committing murder. But then it, or like, not even murder, like, it, it, she It's just, kind of a consequence. She made thing. a suggestion. Right. She killgraved a couple of people into a suicide pond. No big. She did killgrave them. And, you know, it, honestly, like, it, it's going to sound horrible. It's like, I don't really think she's fucking wrong to do that. Like, the woman the woman who's just like, oh, look at this look at this poor mentally challenged girl who, like, our husbands like to rape. She gets drunk and, you know what's fun? Let's dump her in a well in the middle of winter and laugh about it. Right. And then, and then and get then even I'm, more upset when she won't wear clothes. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, you know what? You can go take a fucking walk in a suicide pond, you asshole. I, I'm surprised that when the soldier tried to come back to this town, there wasn't a fucking crater or just a, yeah. like, water filled with skeletons. Well, no, doesn't he say that, like, he can't go back? Like, he can't He's even... compelled to go back by something that would be less, uh, someplace more amenable. Mm -hmm. Like, the thought is placed in his head. He's not mm -hmm. given a choice to it. And it's like, the fact that that's the least of what she did, even in her condition, mm -hmm. they should all consider themselves lucky she only killed, killed grave two people. Yeah. No, and that's actually, that's a point that gets brought up, I believe, like, where it's, like, there are only two people in this town from outside of town, so it's like, what is going, where do all these people, they live here in some sort of weird retconned past, and they all have these really off, like, The place where rhymes. the wolf gods are still worshipped by the older families. Okay, you know what, I think I figured it out now. Alright, so tell me, go, tell me if this is the way it is. Okay. So, an alien race comes to Japan, like, way back in the day. Yes. They set up, then they're telepathic. They have mind control abilities and telepathy. Um, they pose as or genetically insert themselves into a local family. Right. That's the one that owns the house by that place. Something crazy happens that kills off the whole family, leaving one alive and in a paralyzed state. But, like, there's this weird, like, psychic bubble over the town that just doesn't let it, like, intermix with other people. And it kind of, I guess, drives them 
crazy because there's that line where it's like, well, I mean, I guess in rural Japan, like, you know, getting busy is just a thing you, you do, but these people, like, throw themselves into adultery with fucking abandon. Right, it almost it, seems It's like, like a weird Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, like, like, maybe there is some sort of psychic residue of the whole thing that happened or the remnants of whatever was there that's still keeping things semi-automatic on on what it's supposed to be like but obviously there's no one at the wheel anymore yeah and it's like i feel like whatever it is it's probably not being affected by asen or her son like i feel like they're stuck in it and need to escape it right and so maybe that's what the fog is or what when she finally clears her mind up and tells him what that is that he's feeling Maybe that is what was what this whole environment was protecting them from, or was keeping them away from to some degree. Yeah. Incredible story, huh? For such a short story, like. Yeah. I I feel like even after all this, we've only barely scratched the surface. Serious. No, and it's I I still at someday just want to like have a sit down and we'll just like just uh Winchester boy style just have like a road so far where we just do like a quick rundown of all of our stories. Uh, speaking of which, one of the things that I thought was really awesome about the way that this story connects to a past one is, and I didn't know this, but he he translated Heinlein. That's right. And this has a lot of very notable similarities to our episode or to the story that we did on Heinlein, All You Zombies. All You Zombies. That's right. Uh, yeah. You definitely have the sort of other and the time loop idea of, like, people stuck together, you know, child and uh, parent. There's a lot of very similar themes running through it. No, I would definitely say so. And it's also, like, the, the troubled relationship that comes between a mother and a child, especially, like, a single mother, child that they're the, the government's trying to take away from you because you're poor and or insane and or transitioning into a man. I mean, all of those things could be considered by the government the same thing, <laughs> for being honest here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was it? Did you have any other related reading for this? Sure. Um, if you want to go back and listen to our Minority Report episode uh, as well, there's actually a lot of interesting themes uh, overlapping between those two stories as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have the... Uh, we have the, in Minority Report's case, the murdered mother, at least when we're talking about the movie, yeah. is more what I mean. Um, the murdered mother of the psychic kids and having them be taken away and raised for the the good of society around them. I think there's a lot of good parallels. I think so, too. Yeah, no, it's very, like, that story is very, like, but the needs of the many and this, this poor addict woman can't possibly deal with a psychic child. Right, and then by the end of the story, we have the the poor psychic child actually be given some sort of consideration as to what they would want to have happen for them. Mm-hmm. That's nice. She gets she gets to be in a house with her other precog friends. They get to read whatever they want in silence. Oh my god. I I like I freaked out so hard on the ending of that movie. I'm like, I could dick I could dick that. Uh, <laughs> I could too. Uh it's definitely it'd be a nice escape from some of the the constant chattering everywhere. You know, it's a quick aside, it's an actual shame that we're like uh, a crazy amount of episodes into this podcast because the way that I would recast it is um, the Precog podcast where it's just, we get a, we just get a third member to be Agatha and we all pretend to be Precogs reading science fiction. Right, but then only <laughs> Agatha actually has the uh, the minority report. Exactly, we're just rubbish. Like, <laughs> we get 90% of our stories endings wrong. Yep, I like that. Um, uh, I do have a few other things. Yes. Um, Escape to Witch Mountain also has a lot of good parallels with this story as well, in that it has a space mountain 
that magic children mm-hmm. are escaping to. Yeah, they're they're can, they could be considered demonic or witches, but actually they're aliens. Yep. Yeah, so a lot of good parallels there. Also, specifically the movie. If we're talking about things there, I don't know if that is that based on a book. I have no idea. I've only seen the movie, and I would That's highly recommend it just based on the movie. The movie's great. And by the way, if you like the color purple, this movie's got it. A oh, lot so of it. Much. Yep. There's actually, and this is the thing that's horrible, I remember being a kid watching that movie, and just as soon as they went to, like, the rich guy's house, and he showed them their playroom where they had, like, their own carousel and ice cream machines and all that shit, I just, I'm not, I'm a level with you, me as a child, you could take me away from my parents and put me in that room, I'd just stay in that room. I'm not escaping yeah. Witch Mountain, I'm eating all the ice cream. It's definitely tough, you're like, Witch Mountain... <laughs> Ice cream and awesomeness. Which mountain? Ice cream and awesomeness. But, you know, you and I don't have magic purple stuff compelling us to do things, so that's a whole other story. True. Um, this was mentioned in an analysis of the story we just read, but the person writing the analysis compared a lot of this sort of um, aliens landing in our past to Eric von Däniken's uh, Chariot of the Gods, which more recently has kind of seen the light in sort of the Ancient Alien series on uh, mm-hmm. on the History Channel and those sorts of things. Also definitely very heavily written into the uh, um, the fiction, or like the backstory for uh, the Prometheus. Yeah, Prometheus, the definitely, films. yes. Absolutely, 100%. Prometheus is like, uh, it's very much along the same line, so that's such a good recommend too as well. Yeah. I, I mean, there's not as much about, I mean, you know, we're just kind of spitballing this off the top of our heads, the psychic stuff, but... There's definitely the ancient aliens visiting Earth and seeding humanity uh, in the same way, perhaps, that happened in The Legend of the Dead Paper Spaceship. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of other parallels I'm not thinking of now that we'll totally, as soon as we turn this off, we'll be like, oh, Space Jesus was totally, you know, <laughs> this person in the story. No, it's uh, definitely Sun Space Jesus. Yep. Um, I would say for my recommends, um, I just read this and I really loved it. Um, it was Joanna Russ's uh, novella Souls, which is um, it's really good. It's a it's about a boy and his his ward or he's the ward of this abbess in the in the Middle Ages. So it's like it's this older woman who's a nun and she's just like supernaturally like really good at talking to people. She's just like the most kind, patient, funny person you ever met. And then these uh, Vikings invade, and uh, the the abbess like tries to reason with them. And through a bunch of different twists and turns, it gets revealed that the abbess um, is some kind of is some kind of creature that is not from our reality. Like that she is that she's like from beyond. That she's some kind of alien. And like a lot of people attribute like her like clairvoyance to like a saintliness. But actually, she's sort of she's an alien character, and it's the thing that's tragic is this story and that one uh, and the one we just did. There's like there are multiple moments where like this this person who is just an alien posing as a human is giving you every fucking opportunity not to be an asshole, and then eventually someone just is an asshole too much, and the alien's like, you know what, fuck you, you're mind controlled now. Yep. Like congratulations, you just bitched yourself out of your free will. <laughs> And that's actually like, and I love that moment in in this and in and in that one. But it's like it it's a very intense moment of like like I don't disagree with them. How fucked up do you have to be to have your free will revoked by another person? Like, yeah, gotta push too far, too hard, 
too much, too long. Yeah. It, you know, it, all of these characters have that in common. They're like, I've gone well and beyond patience that should go along with the understanding for this situation. No more. Mm-hmm. By free will. You lost your chance. Yeah, and it's like I'm not. I'm not gonna lie to you. I I do understand it, that if you could. Oh yeah, I would carry all of those people in a heartbeat, just like electricity and pig blood flying everywhere. No, and it's like yeah, no, it's just it really is the like the corporeal equivalent of like you know it's like if you have like if you have a friend who's just being a dick and they're super drunk and they're like I'm gonna drive home, take their fucking keys away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you take their keys away. They're gonna be a little abusive. Uh, they'll probably thank you for it later, though. So, I uh, yeah, that's I think that's my only recommend for that one. I uh, can't think of any others. This book is this story was very singular in its way. And and can I just add as a recommend if you've listened to both these episodes, which I, what what are you doing if you haven't? <laughs> um, they go really well side by side. Uh, I I really enjoyed the experience that much more of reading one after the other, and I would recommend that the most out of anything is. It, you know, maybe not necessarily, it doesn't matter the order, mm-hmm. but uh, Triceratops and the Legend of the Paper Spaceship both, they evoke very similar feelings. They do. It's almost like perverse dark sides of one another. Like, just one of them is just incredibly optimistic and the other... They both show wonder. They do. And they both do it very well. They do. Um, but they also show loss very well as well. And I do think they do it from opposite sides of the same coin. Oh, uh... Anything else? I think we've covered it. I think we have. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us in the Mirror Zone. I have been Bryce Skidmore. And I have been David Leskin. And please don't don't be a dick to, tra- to telepaths. It won't end well. It will never end well. Just don't. Don't do it. Don't do it, you guys. Okay, bye. Bye.